face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. We're going to pray and then we're going to turn to our text. Hey Steve, is there anything I can do to stop that hissing? Do you hear that? No? Can I shut mics off or something? No? All right. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Father, I thank you for your character, Lord. And I think this is one particular place where we see the weight of what you've done for us. We see the fullness of the salvation that's worked out for us, Lord. But at the same time, in a way that I, I believe is totally characteristic of you, I think we see your delight and your excitement. And I think we see your sense of humor here. 
Lord, and I think that as we come to you this morning, Father, that you want us to to capture your delight in us, your excitement in what you've done for us, your joy in the way that you have worked in us. And Father, I pray that as we meet, as we meet with you, as we encounter you in the text this morning, I pray that we would be shaken and taken off guard by what you've done for us, Lord, and that we would react with wonder, a wonder that doesn't fade, but that remains with us until we assemble again to hear your word. Father, I pray that we would live today and tomorrow and each and every day that follows in delight for what you've done for us. We thank you for your love and for your grace. We pray your blessing on our time of teaching now in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, summer is truly upon us. Uh, Even though it is still the middle of spring, the the first unofficial day of summer has passed. Uh, A bunch of you are starting to look a little burnt. You know, you got the the red blotches of skin. You're walking with the with the summer ache, you know, I have been burnt, which, which is a, generally a, a sign of a good day yesterday, you know, a sunburn. So uh, summer's on us, the grads are all graduated. Uh, but I want to remind you that as of today, there are only 202 shopping days left until Christmas. Uh, it is coming. And, and if you have a hard time shopping, keep this in mind if some ideas come to you during the sermon this morning of what you should get for so-and-so. Write them off in the left column. That's what I do. I little, put a little checkbox there in my notes. Um, and, uh, and then, and then I, I'll go and, and do that later. Um, as, I, as I think about 202 days left, I think about the hardest people to shop for. Uh, for Nancy and I, it's usually our parents. What do you get for people who have reached a point in life, not that they have everything. I mean, they could always use a, a beach house. Um, but, you know, I mean... You want to have something to leave to the kids, right? Um, you know, they have everything that they need. And, and, and our parents are content with what they've got. Um, what do you buy people who have everything that they need? Uh, the answer to that question for me, uh, which comes primarily from my wife, who's very good at this sort of thing, is, is you get them something unique, you know, get them something artistic that they only sell on the shore, you know, like a, uh, a giant crab that's like spray painted in patriotic colors, or, you know, they've got, you know, something that you can only get here, because they, the likelihood that they've bought it for themselves is, is minimal, and, uh, and so you, you get them, not that Nancy would ever let me buy a giant spray painted patriotic crab, the minute these words left my mouth, I thought, she's thinking, please don't leave them with the impression that I would ever give your parents that. This is just me thinking out loud. Once you get the gift, you start thinking about what you're going to get them next year. But as I, as I think about the hardest people to buy for, I think there are probably harder people to buy for, and those are people who have nothing. What would you get for someone who has nothing, has nothing at all? Imagine someone in a third world country that has nothing. You get them clean water, you get them food to eat, you get them shoes to wear on their feet. Imagine someone who has 
been uprooted from their home by a war. Uh, they are a refugee in another country, and they have nothing. Suddenly, the gifts that you're providing to your children, if you were to give them to them, they might seem trite and inconsequential and, and meaningless. What would, you, what would you really get to someone for someone who had nothing? Imagine someone who's lost all of their earthly possessions in a fire. What they want most is for their pictures and their memories, their treasures to be replaced. You can get them sheets or plates. But is that, can you give them what they most desire, what they most need? I want to suggest something radical here in the light of that. What do we get for people who have nothing? Um, even if someone has nothing, we should treat the way that we give them gifts the way that we give gifts to anyone else. I, I want to I suggest this idea because you may think it, it may be inappropriate to joyfully give someone who's lost all their worldly possessions in a fire to give them something with a spirit of, of joy. You might think you're supposed to be somber and, and sad about it. Uh, somebody who's been uprooted by, by war, or someone in a third world country that has nothing. But gifts are fun, aren't they? Gifts involve surprise and delight. They're the delight that the giver has in giving the gift to the one who is receiving the gift, right? If you're going to give someone a gift that you have no joy in, if it's just a polite gift, uh, and, and I've done this before, I, th I think a good suggestion is to stop, think, and, and try harder, you know? Don't just, the nose trimming stuff that they sell at Walmart, like for $5, don't ever buy that for anyone. I can't think of when that would ever be appropriate to give someone a grooming set. I mean, even if they need it, unless it's like somebody who's like perfectly groomed and then you're gonna give them that as a, as a gag gift. Um, but giving involves delight and joy. And as we see Jesus appear this morning, and he gives out presents to people who have nothing. They have nothing. They need everything. He does it with delight and joy. Let's, let's dig in, and, and I want to I set the scene and then, and, then, and then show why I believe Jesus gives with delight and joy. Okay, the context of Easter Sunday. In the morning, Sunday begins as a bad day. Jesus had died on Friday. They'd celebrated sad Saturday. It's the Sabbath. You can't do anything just to sit and relax and reflect. And all the followers of Jesus, all they could think about was the fact that the day before, Jesus had died. It, his ministry was going great. People were applauding him. They loved him. And then Judas betrayed him. His teaching got real negative and sad all of a sudden. And he was saying he was going to die. And then he did, and now he's gone. And, and there, it, was a, it was a horrible day. Some women got up to go and to, to visit at the tomb. And they thought that they would come to a sealed tomb, but instead they found an empty tomb. The Roman soldiers had run away. Mary went to get Simon and John, and they ran. Remember the foot race for last week? John stayed outside. Peter went in. And then John went in and they saw the grave clothes and there was some dawning of belief. The disciples went back to their homes. Notice that the text says that on the evening of that day, 
the first day of the week, the doors were locked and the disciples were together. So at some point during the day, they had gathered together. And I think the topic of their conversation was, what do you think is going on? I think John was not full in his belief of what happened yet. It said that he believed when he saw the grave clothes, but he did not yet understand that Jesus needed to be, that needed to be raised from the dead. Mary shows up and she says, I've seen the Lord. And I think they're thinking, she was always a little strange. She said, I saw the gardener. I thought he was the gardener, but he wasn't the gardener. It was Jesus. And I was, I was talking to him. And he said to come in and tell you these things. And then later on in the day, as they're gathered together, two of the disciples break in. They've been far up. They've been heading north. And on the road to, uh, to Emmaus, they had met this man. And he began to explain all the things about the scriptures that, that talked about how the Messiah was going to suffer. And then he was, he was going to die. And then on the third day, he's, he'd rise. And they were like, you know, okay, we don't, we don't really get what that's all about. But they were, they were sitting there at the table. And the man took the bread and he raised it up like Jesus had done. And when he broke it, they suddenly had this dawning realization, this is Jesus, and he was gone. And the way the passage is written, I think the two pieces of bread, as he broke it, he disappeared. I think they fell to the plate, and they thought, oh, what has happened? So they come back, and now they're saying, we've seen Jesus. They're hiding out. They know that the Jew, Jewish leaders had killed Jesus to put his movement down, and I think that they knew that if word got out that disciples were teaching that Jesus was alive, that they would come for them. That they would come and take the disciples and crucify them. Because this movement had to end. The, dis the, the, the authorities wanted it over. And so imagine the scene. The door is locked. Their enemies are without, right? They're, they're outside. They are locked in now with at least three of the crazies, right, who are saying that Jesus is alive. And I think John is in the corner, and he's not willing to admit that he believes, yet he's, he's kind of with them because he's seen the empty grave clothes. He's got this dawning realization that Jesus is alive. But no one else believes, and they are filled with anguish, locked in a room. Isn't this like the beginning of the setting? This is the setting for a ghost story, right? One of these horror movies. What's going to happen in the night? I think this is when the fun starts. Imagine the scene. If you ask the question if God has a sense of humor, I think the answer is yes. Look at verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. We attribute many supernatural powers to Santa Claus, right? But Santa has nothing on Jesus. He possesses more powerful skills than the best trained ninja. Because the doors and the windows are locked. And they're there and they're afraid. And suddenly he is in their midst. I think they were probably terrified. All of a sudden, here is Jesus. You know these cartoons, right? Somebody is trying to get away from that infuriating creature, Bugs Bunny, right? He is, 
chasing them, he is harassing them, and they manage to either lock themselves in a steamer trunk or hide in a closet, and the screen goes completely dark, and then you see their eyes open up, and then you see his eyes open up, and he's like, eh, what's up, doc? And they bolt out because they're, they're terrified. Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. I think there was anything but at that moment. They were terrified. Here he is. He's alive. He's got something to say to them, and he waits until they're locked up in this room. Peace be with you. And they have no idea what's going on. But he shows them his wounds. When he had said this, it says he showed them his hands and his side. And it says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Before that, they were completely scared. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He's going to give them the first gift. What is he going to give to the people who have absolutely nothing? The first gift he gives is peace. He says, peace be with you. What is the gift here? The gift is that his own death brings peace with God. We may not think of this. We may not conceive of the narrative of our life this way. We may not think of the life of hu or the, the whole sweep of human history this way. But humanity, since the Garden of Eden, has been at war with God. God gave man the ability, the choice, the decision to obey and to align with him or to disobey and to engage in a war with God. And man chose war. This is the story of the entire Bible up to this point. Man has been at spiritual war with God. But we thank God that we see in the story, in the Bible, a narrative. This is the sweep of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 21. We see that God is engaged in a recovery plan. A plan to free men and women from their sins and to call people to himself to offer him free and not forced worship. The problem, the thing that separates man from God is our sin. Now you may feel that you are not that bad a person. That you are not that big a sinner. And I would say in comparison, each one of us compared to the other, there are probably some really big sinners among humanity. You know, we can make a short list very quickly. You know, Hitler, Stalin, we could throw in a bunch of people like that. And they're the bad sinners among us. But sins are not measured in comparison to each other. Sins are measured according to the degree of the offense against the dignity of the one who's been sinned against. Does that make sense? Right? If I were to pick up an egg right now, right? you know, you're normal. I bring stuff, but I don't have eggs, so rest in peace. You know, do not, do not, do not be worried. And I were just to take an egg and throw it at my buddy Dave Bunting right here you'd probably all be like, that was so not right. Maybe I've sinned against him. I doubt he would call the police. I doubt he would call the police and have me arrested for that. But let's say I'm like that joker 
who a couple of years ago, as the presidential motorcade was rolling through a city, when President Clinton was standing up and waving, this gentleman took an egg and threw it at the president. The Secret Service do not take this lightly. People wind up hurt when they do things like this. They wind up in handcuffs. They are quickly drawn away. There is a lot of chatter going over the radio waves as this person is taken to a probably predetermined, secure location for questioning. And then charges are probably pressed. Fines are collected. And maybe there's even some jail time involved. Because the offense is measured against by the offense against the dignity of the one offended. Does that make sense? A lie might not look like much among human beings. But a lie is an assault on the dignity of the God who is truth, who cannot abide even the slight bending of the truth. To bend it is to break it in his presence. It may seem small to call someone a name, but in the eyes of the one who created all human beings equal and who put his image on each and every one of us and who has given us dignity and worth because he is dignified and he is worthy, to call someone a fool is a great sin. It's a great insult to his dignity. And all sins are sins against his dignity. It, 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 it occurred to me last week, we talked about this in Sunday school, that there are so many ways in which we fail to measure up to the standard of what God set out for us as human beings. The, the depths to which the war goes. Um, we think, you could think simply about the fact that God puts commands in his word that we're to obey and we just say no we're not going to do it or there are good things that we we want to accomplish in our life we want to honor him in our life we want our children to obey we want to have a good marriage we want our church to function right and so we pursue those ends although at times we resort to wrong tactics does that make sense i want my i want to make sure that that my wife um you know that that, that, that she doesn't she doesn't she doesn't think I'm doing anything wrong in our relationship. And so, you know, I'll just, I'll just I'll tell a little lie here to cover myself. You know, I want to make sure that my wife thinks that I'm, I'm better than this person that I work with. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll share all the bad things that they do. Because, you know, she might be impressed with that person. And so, you know, I'm going to run them down. Because I want people to think much of me. We want the right things. We want to be secure in our relationships with other people. But we go about getting to the goal by doing the wrong thing. And then there are times where we do the right thing in the wrong way. Now, you could hypothetically imagine all my children getting into the back of my car last Sunday. Um, this is just a possibility. This might have happened. And, uh, and, and my oldest has got my middle child's Bible because they apparently get points if they bring their Bible to Sunday school, which I think is good. I'll give you points if you bring your Bible to church. Um, and, and so my, my oldest has my middle child's Bible, and uh, my middle child is upset because it's his. 
is very much like his mom in this sense. His justice meter goes off when he is being oppressed. And, uh, and he, says, he says, I want my Bible because that is right. You know, it's mine. Please give it to me. And so I say, middle child, oldest child, it's all hypothetical. Give your brother his Bible. And so obediently he takes his Bible and he swings it at his brother. And, and, it, and his, his brother catches it, but the pages are all fluttering and there's that, ow, you hurt me noise, you know. And it's, it's, he did the right thing, but he did it in the wrong way, right? Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to set it aside, but he came to fulfill it. He came to be the fulfillment of the law. And there's a sense in which we can, we can take that fulfillment and we can say, okay, he fulfills prophecies, he is the servant whom God sent, but there's another sense in which we can say that Jesus fulfills the law for us. Think about this. There is never a command of God that Jesus saw that he did not obey. He obeys every command perfectly. And there is never a goal which Jesus has that he bends the truth or breaks a command in order to get to the right goal. He does everything well and he accomplishes all his purpose all the time. Okay? There are two ways in which he fulfills the law for us. Here's the third way. And this, this just astounds me. And, and, and has just laid on my heart all week with a fresh appreciation for who Jesus is. Jesus obeys every right command of God with the right attitude all the time. He never felt, not for a minute, that there would be a situation where it would be advantageous to lie. He never thought that he would just advance his ministry a little bit by bending the message and not telling the whole truth. He never found a situation where he thought that he would build his reputation by tearing someone else down, that he would enhance his reputation if that person didn't need to be torn down in a perfect way. That's how I qualify that. Go look at Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus got very fierce things to say to the Pharisees. Why, does, why am I saying this to you? Why am, I, why am I sharing these three things? When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes all of our sins upon himself. But when he's raised to walk in newness of life, and we put our faith and trust in the death that he died on the cross, God applies his righteousness to our account. Did you ever do the right thing? Maybe many of you did this with the offering this morning. You wrote out your tithe check, 10% of your income, but somewhere deep in your heart, you're thinking of all those things that you could do with that money, and you put the check in there anyway, and you're like, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Jesus' righteousness is applied to you. Even when you obey the commands of God, and you do it in a wrong spirit, and God would count that sin against you. You've got Christ's righteousness to back you up. He covers every deed that you've ever done in a wrong way, every way that you've transgressed the commandment, every right attitude but wrong action is covered 
And so when Jesus appears to his disciples, he can say, peace be with you because he's purchased that peace for us. The war that you had with God from the moment you were born is over if you put your trust in the cross. That is good news. You are completely righteous in the eyes of God. You don't get enough sleep when you say an unkind word to somebody because you're just not on your game. It's covered. You start a conversation with a friend, trying to share with them a way in which you see that they have fallen short of the grace of God and you're trying to encourage them. In the middle of the conversation, they begin to get defensive and they're not understanding and you begin to get defensive and maybe you say something that you never intended and you walk away from that thinking, Lord, I had the best intentions. I made a total mess of that. It's covered. You do the right thing. But as you're doing it, you detect your pride. You feel like you've, you've failed in some way. You spent all yesterday trusting God for the grace to get through your hard situation, but this morning you wake up and all the same resentments and difficulties are back again. Guess what? It is covered. And we should repent, yes. We should call upon God for His grace, yes. But we should never, ever, not for a second, feel like we have lost our relationship and our fellowship with our great and glorious God who is our Savior. Because Jesus promises us peace because of what He's done on the cross. This is a gift that Jesus gives to one who comes to Him with nothing. Ask yourself, who am I in God's sight? You are a rebel and a traitor. But the gift that He gives is peace. And now He will call you son or daughter. If you're not here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you. You need to embrace this gift. God's placed it out there for you to take hold of. And you can have peace with Him. You can't earn it, but you can receive it as a gift. You need it. Let me urge you to take it. And if you are a Christian, you and you alone, of all the people in this room, you uniquely know people who need to know this. There are people in your life, you sit next to them every day at work. They need to know this message. You eat lunch with them. You are the only person who knows the gospel who buys coffee from them at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks every single day. They need to hear it from you. Because God gave you this great gift, and he calls you to give it to others. The first gift is peace. Here's a second gift, and that gift is life. We see this in verses 20, chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. I love it says that Jesus breathed on them. This is a symbol. He breathes. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. I wonder if when you are raised from the dead, never to die again with a perfect body, if you always have minty, fresh breath. I mean, He's perfect, right? He breathes on them to show them 
this deeper reality. He doesn't stop at giving them peace. He gives them life and the promise of his presence. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says this. This is a description of who we are. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Even though we're dead, we're on this programmed path. We're walking according to the pattern of the, this world. We walk according to the way of the prince of the power of the air. This is the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. It's, he's inciting us to disobey God. Paul says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, just obeying our own desires, indulging the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. And it says that by nature, we were children of wrath. We deserved the wrath of God. You could call us the living dead. We're enslaved to lusts and desires. We deserve wrath. But Jesus comes and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Good Jewish believers who'd grown up hearing the Bible read in synagogue would immediately think of Genesis 2-7. It says, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. See, sin kills us spiritually. It's good that God declares that we have peace with him, that the, the war is over. But even if he declares a pardon to us, we have still died because of our sins. We have no life in us. And so after pronouncing a pardon, after pronouncing peace, Jesus deals with the problem that we don't have a living fellowship with him, that there is no real communion, that there's no direction in our lives. Peace is comforting, but something more is needed. And so he gives us life. The whole story of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 up until this chapter, this is the story. God is making a way through the death of his son, to put his very life, his very presence, back into human beings who are sinful and don't deserve him. And so he pronounces peace, and he purifies us, and then he sends the life of God back into us. I'm going to defend that in just one second. You think, that's not true. It is. Let me prove it. What's the gift that Jesus to one gives to one who has nothing? Ask yourself, who are you? The answer is, you are the living dead. What does he give? He gives his very divine life. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Okay, now listen. So that through them, you, you, this is the you that means all of us, through his precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine 
nature, the very life of God within us, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're considering the claims of the Bible, you're like, I'm just kind of checking this thing out, I don't know if this is for me or not. The longing that you feel, that perhaps you can, you think you could satisfy by eating a whole row of Oreos, or by getting an iPad, right, or getting married, or having a retirement account that's got enough money in it, or by paying off your car, you know that longing that you feel, that you wake up for in the middle of the night? There is only one thing that can fit in that hole. And that's the very life of God Himself. You have a longing within you that nothing but God Himself can satisfy. And if you will just pray and say, I am a sinner, I am a rebel, I need peace and I need life, He will give it to you if you believe it. If you're a Christian, you... And you uniquely know people that no one else in this congregation knows. The person who checks you out in that diner, not check you out with their eyes, but rings up your order, no one else is sharing the gospel with them. They need life. That person who puts the fruit out at the supermarket, you see them all the time, you say hello to them, they smile back at you, and you think, I really like that person. It's not enough. They need to hear that God's Spirit can live in them, and until they have it, they have no life. They need to hear it. Yes, it's going to be weird trying to strike up that conversation, but they need you to tell them. Last point, final gift. First gift is peace. Second gift, his life or the promise of his presence. The final gift is purpose. Notice this in verse 21. Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then in verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What does that mean? In a nutshell, very quickly, the gospel, by nature of being preached to people, either forgives or retains their sins. How are their sins retained? Not because I say, you know, there's some secret pastoral council that meets and says, we're never going to forgive this person's sins. That's not what he's describing here. He's saying, if you preach the gospel and someone says, yes, I want that, and they believe it, and their sins are forgiven, then their sins are forgiven. But if they say, forget it, I want nothing to do with it, with that, then their sins are retained. Nothing else can get that spot out. Because there is only one cleanser that removes sins. And that's the blood of Christ. He sends the church with this ministry. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus is telling us here that there is a greater drama, a greater purpose that he's drawing his followers into. You know, there are no bit parts in the story of the church. There's a script, right? There are no co-stars here. There are no understudies. There's nobody who's permanently benched and just gets to play like man at a newsstand. If you've ever tried out for a part in a play, you want to play the lead, you get understudy and you're like, okay, second best. You try out for the play, you don't get understudy, you get man at the newspaper stand. You know they're like, we like that person, sort of. 
We don't really want them to be offended. We hope that they stick around and will be willing to like paint sets or something. So we'll make them man at the newspaper stand. There's no role for anybody in the church like that. Each and every person is called with this purpose. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus says, not in the same way, but in a similar way, He sends us. He sends Jesus to accomplish salvation. He sends us to proclaim it. Now, I don't want to diminish this. I am going to move quickly because of time. But I want you to see another Bible story here. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God says to the Messiah, 700 years before He comes, years before Jesus even enters the world, God says to Messiah, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Right? He says, I'm going to go through all this trouble of being, bringing a Messiah, a Savior into the world. It's going to be too small a thing just to save one nation of 12 tribes. That's, that's not a big enough goal. So he, he comes up with a bigger goal. He says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So I'm going to send you not just to bring one nation, I want you to bring them all. I give this special job to you. Now, in the middle of the book of the growth of the church, the book of Acts, it says this. Okay? Here's Paul and Barnabas speaking to a group of people who are listening to him, to, to a group of people in a synagogue, and he says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate the word of God, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. Okay? They're saying, this is the command given to us by God himself. You're rejecting the word of God. We're going to the Gentiles. He says, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Do you hear what they did? They're applying a command that was given to the Messiah and to the Messiah alone. These people in the church preaching the gospel are taking this command upon themselves. They're saying God commanded us and said, I've placed you human beings as a light for Gentiles, for people out in the nations. Is this possible? I've placed you that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Is it possible for people to bring salvation and to bring light? The answer is yes. What kind of gift is Jesus giving to a person who has nothing here? Who are we before we know him? We're nobodies. We are the man at the newspaper stand. We're bit players. But Jesus says, I'm appointing you as a light to the nations. I'm sending you to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And all you need to do is say your lines and play your part. He gives us a lead role when we were just a, 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 a bit player. What other gift does he give to one who has nothing? Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. One of six and a half billion people in this world. You may feel the same 
Who am I among all the peoples of the earth? God's given you a tremendous role to play. You know, you may not know this. Yesterday, the, we have a we have a church, a Portuguese church that meets here, and the Brazilian embassy came here and borrowed our church yesterday to be the Brazilian embassy on the eastern shore. So for just a couple hours yesterday, this place was actually a extension of the nation of Brazil. And I thought, that's cool. We were an embassy for one day. But we're always an embassy, aren't we? Because God calls us as ambassadors to go out and to say to each and every person in the world, you can have purpose in your life. You can have peace with God and you can have life, the life that you're longing for by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. If you are not a Christian and you're here this morning and you're looking for a point, this is why God created you. This is the purpose for which He created you. And Christian, if you're hopping from church to church or wondering if you're going to settle down in a church or you're wondering what's the point of it all, why read my Bible, why go to church, why, why pray, why do all these things? Because God has a mission that He desires to accomplish in this world. And he has chosen as his agent you. You need to connect, understand, and go live it out each and every week for his glory. I got a lot more to say, but I'm going to close it there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you demonstrate your sense of humor by proclaiming peace to a group of people who are anything but peaceful at the time that you say it. We thank you, Lord, that you give peace and you also give life. And Lord, we know that we need the life that can only come from you. And Father, though we have peace with you and though we have life, we may lack purpose, but we thank you that you've given it to us in the life that comes by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we receive that peace that life and that purpose as we receive and believe the gospel. Lord, we know that there are those among us this morning who need to believe and receive these truths. And so, Father, I pray that you would call them to yourself. I pray that they would trust in you and you alone for your grace. And, Father, I pray that each and every one of us, as we receive that grace, that we would go and live in it. Lord, that we would take it seriously, not assume it, not sin willfully against your laws, and not keep silent when we know that we should speak up for the truth. Father, we pray your blessing on the rest of our day. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, Lord. And we pray that as we go out, we go out with purpose, which we found in your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, which we find in Jesus. Amen.